Well, the, the message that we had was uh, silver linings. And uh, if you think of kind of what Paul was going through, you know, started a, nearly started a riot, thrown in jail, uh, endured an earthquake, you'd say, yeah, those are all positive experiences. Um, you know, and typically we, we tend to kind of gravitate towards all the, the difficult things in our lives. But it really was a, uh, a wonderful event because of what led up to it. And so the first thing was the unexpected conflict. You remember Paul was going to, um, to a place of prayer and uh, on his way, this woman kept crying out. It was a, it was a slave girl uh, who had a, an unclean spirit within her. And she kept crying out, these men are um, uh, of the Most High and uh, speak of the way of salvation. She kept doing it. And Paul it says that Paul was annoyed, or another word might be troubled, and, uh, and cast the, the demon out of her. Well, uh, she was known that, that demon possession was actually... Uh, what made her known for being able to um, give prophecy, which was very lucrative in those days. And unfortunately, her masters didn't uh, rejoice at uh, the unclean spirit coming out of her. And in the opposite, they got, um, they got enraged. And so brought, you know, swelled up some commotion in the city, brought them before the magistrates, Paul and Silas. And uh, we saw the, the unintended consequences that they were then thrown in jail. But then this unbelievable event happened, and while they were in jail, you know, Paul and Silas were singing, and around midnight, uh, an earthquake happened, and there was a jailer there who was going to take his life because he thought the prisoners had escaped. When Paul informed him that they had not escaped, um, that the jailer all of a sudden came to this you know, realization, what do I need to do to be saved? And uh, Paul and Silas shared the gospel with him. And his whole family and their, their whole family was uh, baptized. So this kind of miraculous event happened, and that's where we, uh, we ended, ended uh, our, um, you know, our, our message yesterday, or last week, with. And so turn to, to Acts chapter uh, 16, and we'll continue where we're at. We're going to be around verse 16 today. So Acts 16, 16. Actually, that's where what started us last week, and so we'll be around uh, verse 35. Well, we'll save the verse 35. The jailer responded, he brought them up to his house, set food before them, rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And so all of these events, all these things that maybe were unexpected or even seemed difficult at the time, led to the fact that this man um, ended up, he and his whole household ended up coming to know Christ through these events, through something that maybe just seemed like a knee-jerk reaction from Paul, you know, casting out this unclean spirit. That's the way that, that, uh, that Luke kind of responds, that it was kind of reactionary on, on how he did it. Um, not the fact that he looked at her, had compassion, but he uh, looked at her and responded with the way that she was, what she was saying, or at least the spirit was saying within her. And um, then, as a result of that, these men responded with anger, and threw him before the magistrates. The magistrates responded with, uh, you know, probably a mixture of apprehension. Um, even though they're the ones that are in control, that's their job was to stay in control of the city. And so they threw them in jail, partially, you know, put them in the inner jail, partially for their safety, um, while the uh, crowd could die down. 
And then, uh, you know, after the earthquake, the knee-jerk response of the jailer was like, I need to end my own life. It's probably better for me to take my own life than to have um, the Roman authorities take it from me because my, my prisoners had to escape. And then, you know, we see all of these things that, again, just seem reactionary, all in God's sovereign plan to bring this jailer to come to know Christ. And so uh, we'll finish this out uh, today. <clears throat> but as we kind of think about these things, um, I don't know why I was, my, my, my daughter had, uh, they celebrated at school, it was like Apple Day. Does anyone know what Apple Day was? What's that? Fall day. Yeah, you could go with that. It was like I was like, what is Apple Day? They had to put like apples on their shirt or something. And so so they were they were recognizing a particular person in history that was known for apples. You guys know who that guy is? Johnny Appleseed. Now do you guys know much about Johnny Appleseed? What's that? He planted a lot of apple seeds. He planted a lot of apple seeds. Yeah, so uh, that's true. That's true. Um, a little bit about, though, how, how he went about it. I mean, he, he's kind of got an interesting story that um, grew up around age 18. He seemed to kind of be this, like, wandering type guy who just, like, wanted to go out and, uh, you know, had, had this kind of sense of calling in his life and um, just wanted to go west. I think he lived in Pennsylvania at the time. And uh, as he did that, he, he convinced his 11-year-old brother to come with him. Um, and as they did, they, they set up nurseries in these different areas. So Johnny Appleseed, the idea is that wherever he goes, he kind of like threw apple seeds and kind of scattered them. But there was a little bit more intentionality in there um, in what he did. And so uh, through most of the northern Midwest states, uh, he, bought, he would buy land. Uh, he, he basically lived in poverty, um, ate very little, uh, lived off the land, um, was known for his kindness to animals, like would... You know, I guess there's a story about him putting out a fire because it was killing mosquitoes, and he felt like he couldn't harm anything that God had put, you know, on this earth, and so he'd rather suffer for that sake. And so he was known not only for who he was, but also kind of the thing that he did. Um, but no matter where he went, he planted these these nurseries. But he also would share the gospel uh, wherever he went. And so if you look at his occupation, he's like, uh, you know, he's an, an arborist, you know, meaning he, he planted trees, but he's also known as a missionary as well. And so wherever he went, he, he planted trees, he, uh, um, you know, built up these gardens, he would fence these areas out. And so instead of just casting out seed, he actually built little uh, nurseries to grow plants, and then every few years he would come back to check on them. And so there's a lot of parallels with, with what you kind of see in Paul's life as they're going. And so what we're seeing in kind of Paul's life as he's going from place to place is that he's kind of scattering seeds no matter where he's at. But it's not just kind of throwing seeds and let's see what sticks. There's an intentionality about what he's doing and how he's going about it. And sometimes, you know, he might have in his own wisdom, you know, idea about where he's headed. Remember, he's in Macedonia because he had a vision and he tried to go all over uh, Turkey um, to, try, you know, he kept trying to go a few different ways to share the gospel, but, but the Lord seemed to close doors and directing him to Macedonia. And eventually he made his way to Philippi, and again, all these kind of events happened, and he made his way into this jail, and this man was saved. And so we're going to pick up our story um, from the, the, uh, the uncondemned apology from where we're at. So, so far, great things have happened. Um, but where do we pick up? The, the jail seems to be, you know, again, the doors are in ruins. The, the prisoners hadn't escaped. This jailer's life has completely changed. 
And verse 35 says, But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, Let these men go. Okay, so the next day we, we kind of get this idea um, that the magistrates send for him. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So, when the magistrates had come and said, you know, so again, this is the very next day, the thrown in jail at night, Paul and Silas singing, again, miraculous response. Earthquake happens, jailer saved, baptized, you know, uh, feeds them, heals their wounds, all these things. Next day, all right, you guys are going to be let out of prison. How did Paul respond to that? What do you say? <laughs> no, right? We're not leaving this place. So, um, does it seem like a little brash that Paul would respond that way? Yeah, I think that's why I like it. That's what you like it. <laughs> 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 so, because um, yeah, there's there's several things that we'll see that um, when when you remember when Paul learned that. Uh, uh, that people were trying to kill him when he was in Damascus. You know, he snuck out at night and kind of was lowered in a basket. Um, there were times that, uh, I remember, he was stoned and, and dragged out of the city, or dragged out of the city, then he was stoned, um, left for dead. And then he got up and then kind of went back to the city and then kind of snuck away. And so there's times that, that Paul, and we'll even see this a little bit later, that the authorities say, you know, leave the city. And he goes and, and he responds and says, okay. But this is one of the times that the magistrates said, okay, you can, you can go now. And so Paul says no, right? Um, we don't want to be released. Now, why was that the case? You know, I think he, he didn't mind them persecuting him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we see the kind of even in the charges um, when Paul was brought up, what was the first thing that they had mentioned? That these men were what? Because remember that, yeah, these men were Jews. That was the first thing that they had said. These men are Jews. You know, they're coming and they're, they're throwing the city into a disturbance. Um, and they're saying things that we as Roman citizens cannot do. And so they almost put them as like, these guys are outsiders coming in to disrupt our whole city. They need to come out. And Paul wanted to establish, now, now what, did, why, what was the reason that Paul was, you know, what was Paul trying to, to clear up? So he was, yeah. So one, he was Jewish. And if we just left it there, then it could be seen that this group is kind of, again, fringe people. Even though there was, you know, Lydia, you know, as being a, a seller of purple goods, we see that she's probably a wealthy woman, uh, has a house um, that... 
a, a woman of means, so some, some notoriety. But they could have been seen as just kind of a marginalized group, kind of, you know, these guys are coming in the, as outsiders, and so when he leaves, they would be looked at in that way. But also, in addition, that not only are Jewish, but being Jewish doesn't also make you distinct from also being Roman as well. Um, and so, in this case, Paul was also a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, um, he had certain rights. And one of those rights was to a public trial. Um, one of those rights was at least a trial before having uh, being beaten, if, you know, if that was to be the case. And so he wanted to make sure that if, since he was unjustly accused, and there's going to be plenty of times that he's going to be unjustly accused. I mean, that's, he kind of takes that as the territory of, of sharing the gospel, um, that he set the records straight. And so um, he was mistreated under Roman law, and so he wanted to make sure that the magistrates um, cleared things up so that it would be clear to all that after this whole riot, you know, sometimes that's what you hear, especially, um, I don't know, have you ever known anybody that has been accused of something that they didn't do? Uh, especially if something like became public. I'm not saying share this, but you know, there are times if, if somebody has been uh, accused of something that they didn't do, but it came public, there tends to be a, um, uh, everybody hears about what happened, but they don't know how the situation necessarily was resolved. Right? And so sometimes those accusations can still remain with those people, even if it was resolved later, even if they were found innocent later, even if you know, it was an um, inaccurate uh, <coughs> transmission. Sometimes, you know, even in reporting, uh, the correction to a news report isn't often um, revealed or it's late, you know, in the backstory or further along in the, uh, the newspaper editions. And so Paul wants to make sure that when he's released... That since this was a public ordeal, he wants his release to be a public ordeal, not like there was an earthquake, because also what could have been assumed as well. There was an earthquake, the the doors broke, and that he could have escaped. So instead of just going quietly the next morning after this earthquake, he wants to make sure that they come and they apologize and they make this a public spectacle. How did the magistrates respond? Yeah, so it says that they responded uh, in fear, right? Um, Under Roman law, magistrates could be removed from their position uh, because uh, for abuse of another Roman citizen. Not only that, Philippi was a Roman colony, and so they could also lose their status as a Roman colony. And remember, as a Roman colony, they had certain um, affordances, they had... Uh, either no taxes or decreased taxes. They had land rights. They had some other things as well uh, that they were afforded. And so with that, they could also jeopardize those things. And so they were kind of afraid. Paul calls them out, says, no, I want you to make a public apology. And they're like, oh, no, (laughs) Uh, we have to do that. So what did they say to to Paul and Silas? What's that? Okay, yeah. So they came out, it says they apologized to them, they took them out, and they asked them to leave the city. So they came and they did so, right? So they made this public apology, um, they, 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 uh, and then they asked them to leave. Now why would they ask them to leave? Yeah. 
Again, their, their whole job as the magistrates are to make sure that there is peace in the city. And they are outsiders. And so even though there's Roman citizens, the way they went about it was wrong. And so, uh, but their end um, justification was they asked them to leave the city. Now, how did Paul and Silas respond? What's that? They lingered a bit. They lingered a little bit, okay. <laughs> so they did comply. They did comply, but they didn't comply immediately. At least we don't see that to be the case. So they, they do comply. They do realize. And we will see that, that there is, um, there is kind of, you know, for as much as uh, we can identify with some of these things in Paul, you know, like David said, there are certain things that you're like, um, you're like, yeah, way to go, Paul, you know, um, <laughs> There, 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 are, there is a brashness about Paul that, that we can identify with, and, and you know, part of our spirit identifies with, with Paul in that way. But um, when it comes to a matter of authority, he knows his place and is respectful of authority. You know, Paul would later write that, um, that you know, governing officials are put in place by the hand of God in Romans, right? And so, so Paul knows his place in um, in that society, but he also knows his rights. And so he's able to leverage those things. And we're actually going to see those things a little bit later uh, as, we, as we go along. You know, as Americans, sometimes, and maybe in different t- parts of our lives, maybe sometimes we feel like, you know, as Americans, we have certain rights. But when we come in contact with different authorities, you know, we should also know our place. And there's a balance. And so some abuse those and think that they have more rights than they actually do, whether it's with an employer <laughs> and thinking, you know, I know best, right, even though your employer is the one who's, you know, in, in that position to call the shots, or whether it's with a governing official, you know, you get pulled over, um, you should hopefully be respectful and obedient to the officer, even though you do have rights. And so how that officer uh, handles himself should be within those bounds, but you should also be respectful uh, within those means. But Paul did, you know, as Phil said, that he did linger a little bit. And so what did he do, he and Silas do, before they finally left the city? Who they, who they visit? Lydia. Lydia. Yeah. And why, why would that be a good idea? I mean, so if they said leave the city and they left immediately, what, are they, you know, what does Paul always know that he's leaving behind? What's that? His people, right, yeah. He's leaving, leaving a church behind. And so as he's leaving, again, he's not just casting seeds and hoping something grows and then we'll see like, well, hopefully something came out of that, right? He is tending to whatever it is that he's planting and making sure that they are set up for success no matter what. Now, he'd been there for a few weeks. And so through his teaching, hopefully, you know, as they were growing, um, they, they would continue to uh, maintain that same trajectory. But Paul also wants to make sure that they're being left in good hands. Now, Paul also knows um, so far uh, his lifespan... That's the right word. But anyway, his, his lifespan for ministry or his ministry span in any particular city um, is always on uh, God's, you know, God's timing, right? And there are times that he is only this place for a few days and he is forcefully ejected from somewhere and he has no choice. Uh, but as much as he can, he wants to make sure that he leaves them on a good footing. Even after his first missionary journey, and he kind of remember, went to the last city, and we kind of talked about how it's possible that they could have taken another route and just made their way home. What was the thing that they did on their kind of the, the round trip uh, for the, uh, the first missionary journey? What did they do? <clears throat> they shared the gospel all the way. They made their way all to Derby, and then they stopped there. 
People responded to the gospel. You know, so far it was a positive event. They could have just gone home to Antioch. But what did they do? It backtracked, right? Even to the places where, you know, Paul had been stoned, been forcibly ejected from the city. And remember, there were Jews following him all along the road that were going from place to place, making sure that, you know, he was continuing on that path. But they went back because he wanted to make sure that the churches were established and set up. Even the whole purpose for the second missionary journey, which, which going back to those churches was very brief in Luke's account, um, was to go and to encourage them and to build them up. And so we still continue to see that even as they're asked to leave the city, they will comply with what they are asked. But as they go, they want to make sure that they go back to Lydia. And it says, when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Um, this, you know, and so this verse is, is also somewhat supportive of perhaps the fact that when they came to Lydia, that there were other brothers and sisters there, um, that Lydia's home is where the church might be, uh, might be meeting. So they went there, encouraged them, and departed. If you got out of jail, would that be the first thing on your mind? I hope so. I hope so. But in our flesh, we're like, I don't know. What would be the first thing in my mind? If I was thrown in jail, usually if we're thrown in jail for something we didn't do and then something happened, we either would have shared the story of what happened or the fact that I can't believe that they treated me this way or, you know, whatever it is. But again, the first thing on Paul's mind is to go and to encourage them. Those are the people that you feel probably most encouraged by, right? You know, have you ever been to go visit somebody that is, you feel like needs encouragement because they're in a tough position, but they're actually the ones that encourage you? All right, like, I'm going to go visit somebody who's sick or in the hospital or whatever, and then you're like, wow. <laughs> I feel humbled. Like, I came to, like, help you out. And the whole way, like, your attitude, your response um, to that has really encouraged me. And so this would have been a huge encouragement to them, uh, to the church there, um, to continue to r- remain on the course that they're on and to strengthen them. And so... You know, the, the stay in Philippi led to two conversions we see. We see the conversion of Lydia, and we see the conversion of this Philippian jailer. Um, and we see others as well. There's other brothers uh, that are there, um, you know, the jailer's household. And, but we, so, so unnamed people that Paul had shared the gospel with. But we do get to start seeing some personal names or at least titles of people who heard the gospel and in the manner that they heard the gospel. Lydia was, she was praying by the riverside. Paul went there, shared the gospel. She responded, invited them to stay with the jailer. You know, God used other means to, to get him there in order to share the gospel with, with this man. And if we read the, the um, letter to the Philippians, you know, when Paul leaves, they seem to be on a solid footing. It's one of the few letters that Paul writes that he doesn't have to correct a whole lot. Um, and in fact, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a letter of joy. That's one of those things that Paul, it's an ironic that when he writes to the Philippians that he is in jail when he is, he is writing this letter. But again, encouraging them from jail, reminding them of who Christ is. We see Christ's humility in Philippians 2. Um, and uh, I can do all things in Christ, Philippians 4. Um, and you know, we see all these things that, that Paul is able to kind of pour into them, and that he is just rejoicing in this church that was birthed out of some unusual circumstances, um, to say the least. Now, the other things would go into that. He's going to send Timothy back to them and some other things. We'll see that along the way to continue nurturing this church. 
But for now, he's been asked to leave, and so they leave. And so that leads us to, to chapter 17. And so we see now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus." And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So, they leave, Thessalonica, uh, sorry, they leave Philippi, presumably on, on, again, decent terms with the church, leaving out of the city. The authorities were like, sorry about that. We didn't mean to beat you, but it's probably good that you left. You know, so... Again, in that public apology, also establishing with the authorities that if Paul and Silas were to come back, that they don't necessarily have the upper hand, but they have at least some justification that um, if they are going to be accused of anything, they better be very, very sure of what's going on, right? Because if not only to have beat them uh, unduly once, but if something like that were to happen again, um, you know, again, the magistrates might be fearful that there would be actually repercussions. And so um, they left the, good, the church, at least maybe the church probably would be secured, um, you know, not have to fear of, of any government, uh, you know, uh, abuse. And so they, they go on their way. And so as they leave, they, they, they said there's three places that they had stopped along the way. Um, Amphipolis, Apollonia, and then Thessalonica. So from Philippi, uh, they would have gone down this route, um, the Via Ignatia, which uh, would connect Rome. Well, you had to cross the ocean, but there's a, a pathway from Rome to the edge of, of Rome, cross the water, and then all the way across Greece um, to Constantinople, uh, which is uh, in Turkey. And so along this route, they're just following it. It's a paved road or a, a you know, a, a cobblestone road. It would have been much easier to travel than some of the other pathways that they would have traveled. Uh, it was um, 100 miles from Philippi to Thessalonica, but about 30 miles uh, away are each of these cities. Um, they are major cities. Uh, Amphipolis uh, was 30 miles from Philippi. It was an important city in Macedonia due to its strategic location. So uh, on its way to, um, to Asia Minor, and some other places at one point, it had been a, a, a capital of the province of Macedonia at one time. We don't see anything as far as like what uh, was done in those cities, except that they made their way through those cities. Um, Apollonia, another city, a large city, 30 miles along the way, and then stopping to Thessalonica. What we're also starting to see here is in the first missionary journey, um, one of the markers that, um, that kind of guided where Paul and Barnabas went 
was uh, an establishment of you know either a Jewish presence. Um, it was also along uh, a major route, but at least to go up to Pisidia um, Antioch was they had to go travel through some valleys, some off-road um, adventures to make it to that city, and they made their way to that city because there was a synagogue there. We see something similar as to why Paul finally stopped in Thessalonica. That Luke says that in Thessalonica that there was a synagogue of the Jews. And what we're going to start seeing is a pattern that is going to emerge is where Paul stops are going to be now larger cities. Um, you know, you have to kind of think, like, where is it best to share the gospel, to set up a, uh, a place to have a ministry base? And for them is going to be a large city that hopefully then can extend out to other places to share the gospel. And so Thessalonica is the second largest city in Greece. It, it is today and it was back then. And back then there were about 200,000 people in Thessalonica. Um, so it appears he stops at Thessalonica, maybe because it's a large city, but Luke again says that there was a synagogue there. And for it to have a synagogue, what does that mean? Uh, a certain number of Jewish men, a certain number of Jewish men right? At Philippi, there wasn't even, um, you know, we didn't see that there was a synagogue. The only thing that we saw was that there was a place of prayer. And remember, we talked about that fact that uh, there had been a tradition that if there was not a synagogue, meaning you have to have at least 10 men, there's a minimum number um, to have a place of worship um, in Jewish tradition. This isn't under Roman law. But if you couldn't have a synagogue, then you would to meet outside the city nearby uh, a, a, a river or, or a creek. And so that's where Paul went in order to find maybe, you know, some Jews in order to first share the gospel with. And so here is a synagogue. There's going to be a Jewish presence that is there. Now, why again does Paul go to the synagogue first? We see that and have established that. Everywhere we go, I ask, where does he go? They go to the synagogue. And why does he go to the synagogue first? What's that? Well, it is his tradition, but why, why does his tradition, why is his tradition become his tradition? First to the Jew and then to the Greek. And why is that a wise, you know, again, why is that a wise uh, mode of ministry for him? Yes. Yes. Okay. So you don't have to, you, you, so one, he's Jewish, and so he's speaking to his people first. And so in that sense, it makes sense that he can reason with them, although he could do that anyway. Uh, there's also another reason that we'll see later on that at some point when Paul starts mentioning, then I went to the Gentiles, some of the Jews just stopped listening. And so he knows that also in his ministry, you know, being a Pharisee amongst Pharisees, that you reaching out to the Gentiles puts up walls for some of the Jews. Uh, much less than, you know, going to a, a Gentile and say, you know, hey, I'm Jewish. It just wouldn't have been the same. The same walls would not have been put up um, that to do that is with. So to broaden his ministry, he goes to the Jews first. Uh, reaches them, and then usually when there's a closed door, then he goes to the Gentiles. Another thing is that it's also an access point through the Gentiles. Well, as we, as we saw in Pisidia Antioch, remember that was after he went to Cyprus in his first mission journey, and I mentioned that he kind of went some back roads and made his way there, that in the synagogue, who, is, who, who, would, sometimes, who would often be in the synagogues there? Yeah, 
God-fearing Gentiles, right? So anybody who was, you know, uh, open to the Jewish scripture, they were welcome to come to the synagogue and listen. And so that was another access point that he could reach the Jews, reach some Gentiles, and start broadening his base. It was very strategic um, in what Paul was doing. Not only... You know, theologically correct in the fact that God went to the Jews first, so Paul would go to the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles. And also the fact that he doesn't have to lay a lot of groundwork. And we're going to see that in a second. You know, Luke's not going to um, do specifics, but we'll talk about some of the things that, that he talks about when he goes there. Um, how often did he go to the synagogue? Does it appear? Okay, what's that? Yeah, so in verse uh, 3, how many, or sorry, verse 2, right, it was his custom. How many Sabbath days did he go there? Three, right? So a few weeks that he made there. So the city of Antioch, he went there one week, and they said, please come back, right? They responded with enthusiasm. What happened? Do you guys remember what happened? He came back the next time, and he was greeted by what? He was greeted by these large crowds, right, and shared the gospel again, and then there was a reaction from who? The Gentiles responded with what? Or at least some of the Gentiles responded with acceptance, right? There was like a message of hope that Paul was bringing. Like, this Christ has come for us. Um, that's amazing. I mean, I imagine them even sitting, sitting in the synagogue as a Gentile, curious, they would have still felt outside of God's reach, right? Because for them to have been accepted as a Jew... What would they need, have needed to do? Yeah, so there would have been not only like a, not only like believe these things to be true, but you need to adopt everything that there is to do. And so that, that would have been like, you know, I mean, one, that, that, would, have, that would have been accounting the cost for a Gentile to become fully Jewish um, in that sense, to be able to become a proselyte was like, I need to start abandoning everything dietary restrictions, who I hang out with, you know, cleanliness laws, couldn't have things mixing with things. You know, it, it would have been a huge deal, especially like interacting with family would have been a huge deal. And especially at certain times, it would have been like, you know what, I have to be separated from you in, in order to be clean. And so they would have even felt that same weight listening. You know, they, they're drawn to who God is and what God is doing but would have felt this, you know, hands at hand's length from being fully accepted by God because they would have had to then make this full transition. And so when Paul says, you just have to believe in Christ, you don't need to become circumcised. You don't need to obey the entire Jewish law. You just need to obey Christ. That would have been something very freeing to them as we see that, that message uh, being proclaimed um, as they went to all the early churches and, and said what the Jerusalem Council had said in that as well. So they came three times. So this time they, they made it three weeks, right? Paul made it, has at most made it two weeks. So, so far, three weeks that he's come back and he's reasoned with them. Again, we don't know what he said in these, these, uh, these messages, but if you go back to um, Acts chapter 13 and you see what Paul said in Pisidia Antioch, it's almost the exact same things that Paul is, or that Luke is describing what Paul had talked about um, when he was there. So what were some of the things that, that Paul said? What was the content of his message? Okay, so first that the Christ had to suffer. Okay, you guys, where where would you go to see that the Christ had to suffer? 
So Isaiah, yeah, and we've talked about that in, in a few different places. Peter picks up on this, and, and uh, you know, Paul picks up on it as well. Isaiah 53 would have been a place where, again, their understanding and a lot of the Jewish mis- misunderstanding about who the Messiah was, was that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to conquer and free us. But Isaiah 53 is that the Messiah must suffer. So that would have been a place to go to among in other scriptures that we you know, have looked at in the past to go to to see that the Christ must suffer. Okay, That was the first thing. And then that the Christ must what? Rise from the dead. Now, if you go back to Acts chapter 13, you can see that Paul does the same thing. And remember when uh, he goes to a few passages, uh, one being David, um, you know, in the fact that he will, uh, that there is an afterlife and that um, the day that David is speaking to his Lord in the sense of seeing him in the afterlife and that there will be this king who comes in the line of David. So he kind of establishes there from the Jewish scripture that there will be a resurrection and that this Christ must rise from the dead. So Paul's done that in the past and he's going to do that here as well. And then what's the third thing that he does? Jesus is that Christ. Yeah, so it's like, you know, part A and part B and A plus B equals C, right? You know, so it's like, I'm, I'm telling you that one, and in the past, if you actually read in, in the, when he goes to the city of Antioch, he actually flips it. And he, talk, he talks about Jesus first, and, uh, and then he talks about the fact that this Jesus was spoken of uh, in the Old Testament. He could have done some, something, something similar, and Luke just kind of says, this is what he talked about. Or he might have you know, flipped the script a little bit, maybe give him some more time, you know, a couple of weeks to, to finish you know, out his reasoning of the Scripture. But one, the Christ must suffer. Two, that the Christ must rise again. And three, I don't know if you've heard about this Jesus, which presumably they would have, um, uh, just again, for Jews going back to Jerusalem during different places in time, and might have even been there, some might have even been at the, the time of Christ's um, death, probably could guarantee that. Um, but he relates that this Christ, or sorry, yeah, the Christ that was spoken of is Jesus. And so that's what he says, again, pointing out that um, their Messiah, the Messiah that they're waiting for, is Jesus. And so, what was, the, what was the response to that? Who joined, who joined Paul? Okay. It says, yeah. So it says, some, right, some of them are persuaded, right? Some, we would, we would presume, some Jews. Um, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. So, likely would have been there. If he had the same effect that he had at Pisidia Antioch, it could have been that the crowds grew. Because uh, remember, after that first week, something happened where people went back. You know, again, we joked about that Paul and Barnabas handed up flyers and said, come to the next one, you know. And, uh, but the next time, like, there was a whole bunch of Greeks that came and that were listening um, for that. And so a great many of, of devout Greeks, again, that, that terminology would have been those that would have been... Um, you know, uh, following or, you know, open to Old Testament teaching could have been like Cornelius that pay, even paid their alms and were respected among the Jewish uh, community. Um, so we see that group. And then a few leading women. Why do you think uh, Luke has said that? He says that in a couple different places that even a few leading women uh, have turned to, to the gospel. Okay, 
Yeah, and, and we see that, we've seen that in, in different places as well, that you know, some of the, the leaders of the men and some of the leaders of the women, usually it's described as devout women. Uh, it would be leading men or devout women. And usually, we, as we talked about in the past, the, um, that devout women would have had an influence over a lot of other women within the community. And Luke just points that out. Um, interestingly, that in several different places mentions that, that a few of the, the leading women... Um, uh, turn to turn to Paul. Who opposed Paul? It's interesting here. It says the Jews. Yeah. But not all the Jews. It's, but it's here. You know, we start to see the term the Jews used as a shortcut for the non-believing Jews. True. The opposition. True. Um, we also see what's that? The resistance. The resistance. <laughs> um, and we also see that the, the Jews, you know, also can be a term for the leaders of the Jews. So those that would have been influential. But yeah, you, you do see that, that idea and that term that the Jews have rejected the gospel, which means that Paul is now, you know, when the Jews have rejected the gospel, again, not all the Jews, some had accepted what, what Paul had said, but he's going to stop going to the synagogues and and sharing there, and will turn his ministry to other ways. And typically, what's within the congregation is what we see, or in the marketplace, where either where he's working or um, you know uh, going about his his daily life. And so, the Jews though were jealous. We saw that same response by the Sadducees, the San, basically the Sanhedrin, all the leaders in the Jewish community, that they were jealous of what was going on. We saw that same response in Pisidia Antioch, where a great many crowd, you know, a, a great large crowd came that second week. You know, they begged them to come back, and that was what their response was. They were jealous. They were jealous. And again, what do they need to be jealous of? They did, yeah. In Jerusalem, they did. Now, back in uh, in Thessalonica, right? The Jews would have been much less, but would have had their own in that community. Would have had their own level of influence. And this Paul comes in through the synagogue and is reaching some of their people, and then even going beyond that, and even reaching some of the leading women of the city. This very large city. That in a matter of a few weeks, Paul has has reached their ears and they're responding to him and not to them. And so, out of that jealousy, who's this guy coming in and right and, and you know being popular with the people and preaching this message? You know, Paul's just being faithful to what the scriptures are saying and expounding who Jesus is from the scripture, trying to reason with them and show them who Christ is. And in their unbelief. And in their jealousy, it instigates them to uh, incite other people. It says the, the rabble right, of the, uh, the wicked men of the rabble. And they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. Same thing happened back in Philippi. And so, um, remember, the response was in Philippi that they were thrown in jail. But we'll see what, what happened. So, um, what, what did the mob do? Who do they who do they attack? Yeah. Yeah, so it's attack the house of Jason, um, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Now we don't know anything about Jason, so J- Jason just got thrown into this. So the only thing we know about Jason is like, 
you know, he was, uh, he was with these men. So presumably had responded to the gospel, invited them to come in to be with them. They're looking for Paul and Silas, you know, in the ministry, ministry uh, group, can't find them. So, Jason, you're coming with us. This, this mob, you know, if we can't find Paul, we're at least going to take you as a representative and uh, bringing them out. Uh, that name Jason was apparently a name, uh, in a couple of commentaries they mentioned this, uh, a name that was adopted by um, Jews that had been in the diaspora, meaning those that had been dispersed into um, Gentile lands uh, as a, just kind of a common name. Um, and so, but we don't know who this Jason was. And so, um, what do they do to him and some of the other brothers? What's that? Yeah, before they take money from him, what's the first thing they do? Yeah. So again, take him to the authorities, similar as, uh, as, as we see as the, the magistrates, although the, the term that uh, Luke uses is actually particular to a particular type of official, which is in the Macedonian region. And so brings them before these city authorities, similar to what just happened in Philippi, um, and what was the accusations that were levied against them? Yeah, right? These men who've turned the world upside down have come here also. So their reputation, even 100 miles away, seems to have made its way all the way to Thessalonica. Um, You could make it to Thessalonica by horseback in a couple days, but it would have taken longer than that by foot. So how that news traveled, but it did travel. Or is the fact that maybe Paul had said he had just come from Philippi. Maybe they knew that, you know, he was... uh, he had shared that he was thrown in jail or whatever reason. He might have shared that information. But they know that, that what had happened previously is also happening here today and that they are turning the world upside down. It's kind of interesting, like the, the terms and the phrases. But again, the magistrates and the officials are there to keep the peace and they, don't want, to make, they want to make sure that, that these mobs don't break out because that could be destruction in the city or it could mean military control uh, and authority being taken away from them. And so if a mob says these things, that they're starting to cause a riot, and they're, that, that is why they're here, it makes their accusations a little, have, carry a little bit more weight. Now, not only that, what are they saying that they are specifically doing? There's another king, right? There's another king, Jesus. We haven't seen that necessarily to be the case, although when you think about who the Christ is, the Christ would be in the line of David, so it would be the next the Jewish king, right, to come and to eventually rule. And so what they're taking is some truth, so perhaps you know, they, would, they know the content of the message and what Paul has been saying, but they take that message and they levy it against Caesar, right? Remember, the, the Jews did that against Jesus as well. They said that, that Jesus is, uh, is um, you know, trying to uh, you know, say that he is another, um, another leader and put it up, up and against Caesar as that accusation. You know, the Jews had more of a theological issue. But the magistrates don't really care as far as theological matters. That's something internal that they could deal with. But when it comes to um, authority that is a governmental issue, 
that is where they have a problem. And so, it says the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. How could they do this, right? They were troubled. Again, that's the same uh, similar words that are being used um, when, uh, when the magistrates heard the same thing in Philippi. But the response was different. What do they, what do they ask of, of Jason? Whether they asked him or not, they, they, they got it from him. They told him, what did he need to do? Yeah. Yeah. So a pledge, a security, essentially it's a bond. Um, so we don't see that Paul and Silas and, 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 and the um, others are there. Uh, so, again, just Jason and, and some other people that were in the household were drugged in front. But in order to make absolutely sure, because Jason would have been associated with these men, to be absolutely sure that they left the city, that they don't continue this ministry, they take money from him as a bond that nothing will happen again, and then they let them go. So, um, so after that... Verse 10 says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. To Berea. So, Paul and Silas, why do you think they left at night? What's that? To avoid the mob in case, you know, because they, you know, again, assume that it's only Jason and the others that were there, that they weren't uh, actually uh, taken in front. And so to avoid any sort of commotion that they left by night. Again, they don't want to leave the city. They, one, they, they understand while they're in God's will, they don't want to uh, provoke um, certain people to act against them. Uh, but also they want to make sure that they don't incite anything else out because Jason's put his money on the line. So they're also concerned for Jason, but they're also concerned for the church as well. But unlike uh, in Philippi, where they're able to go back and encourage the church, unfortunately, they have to leave and get out of town. Do you think they were ready to go? That's hard to say. I don't know. But if you go into 1 Thessalonians, there's a couple places that Paul you know, indicates, uh, you know, either subtly or more clearly, um, that their work had not been finished. So that's kind of the great thing. I mean, we're in you know, Thessalonians right now, now in 2 Thessalonians. But in both of those letters, you know, Paul has a lot to say. You know, he's, again, clearing up some, some misinformation, encouraging them. Uh, you know, we have this, uh, this idea that he's writing only a few months after he had already left. Um, and so it's very close to, the, to when Paul had ministered to them. But Paul mentions in 1 Thessalonians 2.18 that he is desired to come back to them, but Satan is hindering them. And so it could be this, uh, Satan's hindrance is the fact that the officials don't want him there. Um, and, uh, you know, the Jews don't want him there. And so they know that it's too soon to go back. Um, in 1 Thessalonians 3, he says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. We'll get to Athens. It's the, the second city that we're going to get to after uh, uh, Thessalonica. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and to exhort you in your faith. And so this idea when they could bear it no longer, that they weren't ready to leave. You know, there were people that were responding to the gospel. There were large crowds. You know, um, it's just too soon. 
And only being there for a few weeks, um, they would have had a lot of questions. There's a lot of things that they would have undoubtedly tried to minister and share with them, which is why you see in those two letters uh, the information that is shared, some misinformation that Paul has to clear up. Um, But he is able to send Timothy, uh, but he has to clear some things up um, through letters as well to them. But they weren't ready to leave, and unfortunately had to kind of slip away uh, under the cover uh, of night. And we, we see that Paul and Silas were sent away. We, maybe Timothy stayed for a little bit longer, met up with them, and then was sent back uh, in a little bit. We're going to have to pick up that information um, a little bit later. So we see some of these patterns starting to emerge, and we're going to see some of them continue to emerge that happened in the first missionary journey um, for people's response to the gospel. But Paul Again, it's trying to be as faithful as possible in the time he's, he's been given, uh, with the people that he's been given to be in front of, um, to share the gospel. And we just have to stop and kind of think about that in our own lives, right? You know, sometimes that there's, there's situations that we're not ready to leave. You know, we, weren't, we, we thought we maybe would have more time, or for whatever reason, somebody moves, or we move, or you know, somebody gets transferred. You know, all these things happen in our lives. Um, but it's all in the Lord's timing, right? You know, it's all in the Lord's timing of what we're able to share with a person um, in the time that, that God has given us. And sometimes you know, God will allow us to just you know, happen upon someone and share the gospel. Sometimes it's through a miraculous event, uh, you know, uh, through a difficult situation of our own um, that God opens up a door. But um, it's just, again, not only in the book of Acts, but in so many different places, God uses open doors, but God clearly also uses closed doors in how he is uh, getting you to the place that he wants you to be. And as long as we're still, you know, in the word, uh, still, you know, uh, seeking his will and his guidance, that we're exactly where we need to be, when we need to be at the place that he has us. Um, Whether we want to be there, whether we don't want to be there, we just have to trust the Lord that we are faithful when we are there, to be obedient to him. Um, so we'll pick this up. You know, Paul goes to Berea, which is a very significant you know, uh, uh, city in the sense that we are all called to be Bereans, and so we'll see why if we don't know why uh, next week. Uh, but is there any closing comments or thoughts from what we've studied today? Mm-hmm. You know, these, these are all things that, that they said about Caesar, and now he's saying that about Jesus. That's true, true. Yeah, so that's a good good connection. And and for those that, again, uh, you know, are obstinate to the gospel, they'll use whatever they can to say, well, this is what Paul was saying, even though he's not exactly saying those things at that moment in that time, um, but to stop the gospel, but... The Lord had them there for the right reasons in the right time. I think, too, it's Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, I, I doubt that a lot of it was a theological difference. You just see the destructiveness of jealousy. You know? I mean, it's jealousy that caused him to hand Christ over to Caesar. I mean, Pilate saw that. It didn't take, like, discerning eyes to see that it was envy. And then jealousy here. 
great jealousy earlier in Acts, and then, I mean, you just, and Paul James talks about jealousy and selfish ambition. Where, where that exists, it's earthly, natural, demonic. There's always disorder in every evil thing. And anytime you see that, I mean, it always results in, in wickedness, you know, in the name of God. You know, godly men using these things to destroy yeah, and, and as much as, I'm glad you guys kind of pointed that out, and as much as we can see, like, you know, I, I have a, you know, I agree with you on this point, but I don't agree with you on that point, but it really comes down to a heart issue, right? And so there's, there's more than just, like, what they believe about something, but wrapped up in belief is our response, and a lot of it is jealousy of what they see and uh, what was going on and losing hold of the power. That's why, you know, Jesus often said it was hard for a rich person, right? Easier to go through the eye of a needle uh, our camel to go through an eye of a needle um, than for a rich person to believe in the gospel. They thought that was amazing, but it's it's giving up power to over and control over to Christ, and that's something that they weren't willing to do. So, good thoughts. All right, I know we ran a little late, but uh, 